Would you turn to Matthew chapter 1, please? It's on page 807. We're continuing our journey through the genealogy of Jesus. If you, here, if you were here with us before Advent, you know that we were making our way through the gospel according to Matthew, and we stopped in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. And now we're back in chapter 1 for Advent, and then we'll get back into chapter 5 in January. Matthew chapter 1. So we, by we I mean my family, we are a live Christmas tree family. Raise your hand if you're a live Christmas tree person or family. Not as many as I thought, all right? Every year, we fork out some cash and buy a Christmas tree that we know we're going to throw in the trash just a few weeks later. That's just what we do. We enjoy it. We enjoy the search. We enjoy the tradition. We enjoy the smell. We enjoy the unique opportunity to get, to, opportunity to get a brand new tree every year. If you're an artificial tree person, you're just looking at the same one year after year after year. <laughs> There's grace for artificial tree people. But this year, I would say this. I think we found the perfect tree. If I could make it artificial and keep it for next year, I would. But I can't. This tree is a perfect isosceles triangle with no bare spots, strong branches, and a beautiful fur scent that you can smell once you step into our living room. It smells good. We don't always find the perfect tree, but this year I feel like we found the perfect tree. We like to keep ours until New Year's Day or even a little bit after. So, of course, the question always is, as we're searching for our live tree, it took us probably, what, 45 minutes to an hour last Sunday? We looked for a long time. Thankfully, it was kind of warm. The question always is, is this thing fresh? Will it last? Now, of course, we know it's not going to last last. We just want to see if it's going to last for the next four weeks or so. Or is it going to stop drinking water the next morning after we put it into the stand? We've had those kinds of trees before, too. This tree is still drinking water. In, in fact, this morning, I was laying down next to it, put my hand in the stand, and it was dry. I forgot to put water in it yesterday, so I filled it up this morning. This tree hopefully will last until 2024. Here's the thing. Though we found the perfect tree... And though we hope it will last, if we would somehow glory or boast in that tree, we would be glorying or boasting in a misapplied way, in a mistaken way. Because who's the one who made that tree? God himself did. God himself did. So our question of will it last is really like, will it last for the next four weeks? And we know that because it was cut down, it's not ultimately going to last. Well, there's another tree that God made. It's the family tree of Jesus. 
And it's a much larger, grander, older tree. And we're seeing here in Matthew chapter 1 that this tree is beautifully designed, actually. It has three sets of 14 generations covering 1,200 to 1,500 years, okay? In case you're wondering, not every single ancestor of Jesus is included in this genealogy. Some are included, some are not. But some unique qualities about this family tree is that it seems that according to the Jewish practice of gematria, that assigns numerical value to letters, someone's name in this list equals 14. It's the Dalit, Vav, Dalit letters in the alphabet, Hebrew alphabet, David. So David's kind of the main figure in this genealogy. David's name is also the 14th name on the list. If you get my picture, everything is kind of pointing to David in this family tree of Jesus. But see, here's the thing. Though this tree is old and grand and created by God himself, this tree is not symmetrical. We might think of a capital letter M, right? A capital letter M, when you fold it in half, it's symmetrical. The lines match up. Well, these three sets of 14 generations are more like an N. The first set goes up. The second set comes down. And the third set goes up again. When you fold a capital N in half, it's not symmetrical. That's more of what we're experiencing here in these three sets of 14. There's a rising action, a falling action, and a rising action. This morning, we're in the falling action of verses 6 through 11. A descent into the largely wicked rules of Judah's kings. These kings were descendants of David, to whom God had promised an everlasting line of of kings. The question that the wicked descent begs is, will this line last? Will this tree continue to live? Should it continue to live? Should this line even last? With those optimistic questions, let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beauty of your creation, everything from the Christmas trees, the poinsettias, the snow soon to come of our world here, Lord, but we thank you even more so for the creation of this line of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for exalting him as the star on the top, for giving him to us, Lord, for the sake of salvation and worship and our joy. Would you give us joy this morning as we're in your word, in your name, amen. So, uh, Pastor Jake made some timeline slides. He's going to use some next week, but Jake, I didn't tell you this, I actually added one to it. So I'm going to start with one and two. He's going to use maybe all four of them next week, but at least three and four. So we'll go ahead and put that first slide up there. As I take you to Matthew chapter one, and let me read verses one through 11 for us. 
The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So, we begin with the first set of 14 which I'm entitling The Family of Kings. These are the generations of righteousness. Let me explain. Certain generations are named in these three sets of 14. This generation, people are specifically chosen to be named, as we talked about the last two weeks, to highlight faith was credited to them as righteousness. If you know your Bibles, that was first said about Abraham. And he's the first person on our timeline. Abraham and Sarah. God makes a covenant with them, a covenant of circumcision with Abraham. Abraham's faith had already, in his story, been counted to him as righteousness. But then, in Genesis 17, God makes another promise. This is the covenant of circumcision. Listen. God, in speaking to Abraham, says this, No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Later on in that chapter, God speaks again to Abraham regarding his wife. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come. 
So here we see that in this covenant of circumcision to Abraham and Sarah, God promises, as he did earlier, to bless the nations through them. But then he adds this additional detail. Kings will come from you. We move on to Judah and Tamar, as Jake preached about them two weeks ago. Tamar had a rough story. Tamar was taken advantage of. Tamar was on the, on the outskirts and accused of a sin that she did not commit. Gentile Tamar, however, was vindicated by the one who sinned against her, repentant Judah. And Judah says of Tamar, she is more righteous than I. We move on to Rahab. And though I didn't mention her husband last week, Salmon. You might remember that Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab didn't seem to have a husband while she was running the business in Jericho. But after she runs to her home in the wall... And the walls then come tumbling down, and the army of Israel sees that she has hung a crimson cord out of her window. Her home is still standing, though all the walls have fallen. The blood of the lamb symbolically is hanging out of her window like it covered the doorposts and lintels in Egypt. And they let her be. She lives. She joins Israel along with her father and all of their house. The Gentile Rahab was saved by Joshua. And after she marries Salmon, she gives birth to a son named Boaz. If you are here in 2022 during Advent, you would have heard us preach an entire Advent series just on a woman named Ruth. Ruth was also a Gentile. In fact, she was a Moabitess. She was a widow. Her Hebrew husband having died in the land of Moab. Her father-in-law also died. And as her mother-in-law, Naomi, decides to go back to the house of bread, because there is now food there, whereas there had been famine before, Naomi says, stay here. I have no husband for you. There's no hope with me. But Gentile Ruth trusted God. She showed hesed, loving kindness to Naomi. She made a covenant with her mother-in-law. She said, you shall be my people and your God my When she arrived back in Bethlehem, it was discovered that there was a kinsman redeemer named Boaz, the son of Rahab and Salmon, who was ready to redeem Ruth. And after they were married, Ruth gave birth to Obed. But here's the thing. This beautiful, romantic, loving kindness story of Ruth happened in the midst 
of a terrible time in Israel. The time of the judges. During the time of the judges, the author of that book that just precedes the story of Ruth, the final verse says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What the author of Judges is creating in his readers is this hope, this expectation, this realization of desperation that unless they have a king, they will continue to do what is right in their own eyes. They needed a king who would rule them so that they would do what is right in God's eyes. And that king came, in part. We can move to the next slide, entitled, The Kingdom. If the first set of 14 were the generations of righteousness, this set are the generations of royalty. Certain generations named to highlight the right to rule. The legal right to rule that was being passed down. The authority that God himself had invested in David. And this is David's line. Obed, the son of Boaz and Ruth, was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. We read that in Matthew 1.6. God, then as David is king, makes a covenant with David. If you want to know more about how David became king, you can not only go back to our website and watch the sermons from Ruth from last fall, but you can also go back to the spring and watch our sermons from the book of 1 Samuel. That shows how God raised up a righteous king, David. He establishes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Sorry, my ribbons are a little confused here. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Listen to what God says to David. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. See, David had wanted to make the Lord a house, wanted to build a temple for him. And the Lord flips the script on him. And he says, I'm actually going to make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
who was the one who built the home for the Lord? David's son, Solomon. And so the Lord is, in part, speaking of Solomon to come. David's son. But see, here's the thing. David's line, his descendants coming after him, had a scandalous beginning. If you know the story of David and Bathsheba, Bathsheba was not David's wife. Instead, she was, as it says in Matthew 1, the wife of Uriah. But David, the king, abused his power, brought her into his house, while Uriah was off fighting the king's battles. And David impregnated Bathsheba. She then, after David had Uriah murdered, became David's wife and bore him Solomon. Solomon completes the first temple. And very soon after Solomon passes away, Israel and Judah, the people of God, actually divide. They break up into Israel and to Judah, two kingdoms. And so as we get into this second set of 14, we're dealing with the kings of Judah, not the kings of Israel here. This is the southern kingdom. These are the sons and grandsons and great-grandsons and great-great, you get the picture, of David himself. But here's the thing. Judah has a total of 20 kings. And of those 20, only four of them do what is right in the sight of the Lord. This family tree of Jesus, specifically seen here, in the family line of David is rotten. Who are these kings of verses 7, 11, 7 through 11 of Matthew chapter 1? I'll lean on Daniel Doriani. In his commentary, he describes them like this. First, about half of the kings listed in the genealogy, sons of David all, were truly wicked. Ahaz worshipped Assyrian deities, practiced human sacrifice, and defiled the temple. Manasseh, incredibly, was worse. He did more evil than the nations that God had expelled from Canaan. Manasseh promoted idolatry and murdered the innocent. All in all, the books of 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles parade a band of malefactors from Rehoboam to Jeconiah. Second of all, with the exception of Josiah, even Israel's noble kings committed great sins. David was notorious for his explosion of sin in 2nd Samuel 11. Jehoshaphat allied himself with wicked men. Motivated by pride, Hezekiah foolishly showed all of his nation's treasures to enemies who soon returned and plundered them. And after years of successful rule, Uzziah became proud and arrogated priestly privileges to himself. It has been said that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts 
absolutely. We're seeing this exactly in the line of David. God's people needed a king to lead them in righteousness, yet their kings were just like them. Doing what was right in their own eyes, royally rotten. The thing is, Jesus' old, grand, God-created family tree connects our Savior to those kings, to those people, and even to all of humanity in all of our unrighteousness. Here's an important question. I've used the word unrighteousness and righteousness quite a bit today. Words. What is righteousness? In men's Bible study on Wednesday night, we talked about the question, what is justification? There was silence for quite a few moments. As we thought through, do we really understand what justification means? Ladies, we'll be talking about it this Wednesday. But righteousness is another word where we need to have an understanding of what it's really talking about. Otherwise, it's just a religious word that gets thrown out there, sung out there, prayed out there, and doesn't really have much of meaning for ourselves in how we understand God, ourselves, or how we, or how we might know God. What is righteousness? Listen, it's always good when thinking about theology to start with God. Theology means the study of God. Righteousness is an attribute of God. By attribute, I mean an unchangeable quality of it. It is who God has been and who God will be. Eternally past, eternally present, eternally future. Righteousness is the divine attribute that describes God as always acting in a way that is consistent with his own character. Let me say that again. God's righteousness is the divine attribute that describes God as acting always in a way that is consistent with his own character. That definition is from a Gospel Coalition article on what is the righteousness of God. John Piper flows right along with that. He says, God's righteousness is his unswerving faithfulness always to preserve and display the glory of his name. Now, when somebody at work, let's say, does something differently than you would have expected them to do, either good or bad, you might think, not in these words, but you might give other words to them, 
well, that's not much like him. Or that's not according to her character. That's because we're inconsistent people. We may have patterns of behavior, but we surprise each other. Not always for the good. God never surprises. God is always consistent. So when you come to his word and you think, I don't think God would ever do that. I would like you to say, God, would you show me why you did that? In a way that is consistent with your character. Because I believe that you are righteous. What he does always agrees with who he is. So righteousness consists in glorifying God and nothing less. And God glorifies himself always. Always. We don't. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God to glorify him. To reflect God's righteousness. By always acting in a way consistent with God's character. Made in his image. To walk in his way. To believe and follow his words. Not as God, but as reflections of God. However, Adam and Eve chose to glorify themselves instead. Thereby not glorifying God as God when they sinned. Therefore, Adam and Eve became unrighteous and imputed their unrighteousness to every one of us. To all of humanity, including Israel's kings, including Israel, and including you and I. Therefore, the rot grew up from the inside. As it grows up from the inside of us as well. Therefore we should not be surprised that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that David and his kings could not make everyone righteous. They were sons of Adam, just like themselves. A few weeks ago, the tree trimmers came by. Treats of sanitation. They stopped up the block on Hollywood. And they were there all day. It was a little too far for us from where we lived to see what they were doing. But then one of the neighbors, I forget who it was, 
actually walk down there to see what they were doing. They were not just trimming some limbs. They were taking down two huge trees. To which it seems obvious to everyone those trees were rotten. There would be no reason for a division of Sufi sanitation that is tasked with caring for trees would take down two old, grand, beautiful trees if there wasn't something desperately wrong with them. These guys, as good at their jobs as, as they are, could not heal those trees. The trees had to come down. They were rotten. So we see here, the end of Matthew 1.11, that this royal line's descent into their own rottenness leads to deportation to Babylon and exile. I would look, like to look a little bit more closely at the last king who is named, Jeconiah. He's also named Jehoiakim or Kaniah. If you would, go ahead and turn to Jeremiah chapter 22. It's on page 649 in your pew Bibles. <coughs> Jeconiah's grandfather was Josiah. Josiah was faithful to God with all his heart and soul. He performed the covenant, and get this, as one of the legitimately God-honoring, faithful kings. How did the people respond to his faithfulness? The people of Judah also honored the covenant with him. His righteousness trickled down and covered them. However, Josiah's son was Jehoiakim. Look at Jeremiah 22, 13 through 17. This is Jeremiah's message of woe to King Jehoiakim. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it paneling it with cedar, and painting it with vermilion. You think you're a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your fathers eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with them. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me? declares the Lord. But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. That was Jehoiakim. What about Jeconiah? 
2 Kings 24, it says this. Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, was 18 years old when he became king. And he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to, in agreement with, all that his father had done. Jeconiah was evil just like his father. And so we see that Jeconiah and his brothers are deported to Babylon. Back in 2 Kings, at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. The generations of royalty of the kingdom had come to a close. Jeremiah makes this abundantly clear in chapter 22, verse 24. Prophesying the voice of the Lord, he says to Jeconiah, As I live, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, though he were the signet ring, a signet ring would be displaying royal authority, though he were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, they shall not. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. A man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Jerusalem. God has just said, I recognize the rock. I knew 
it was there. And now the tree has been felled. To which we should ask the question, Jeconiah childless? Does this mean no heir to David's throne? Will God keep his eternal promise to David? Will his line Well, when we get to Matthew's genealogy, we are being introduced to a new line. This is the genesis of Jesus Christ. A new beginning, a new creation, a kingdom of heaven by an eternal king. A king of righteousness who will save his people from their sins. Who are those people? A people who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. A people who say, person who say, amidst a people who say, on our own, all we do is what is right in our own eyes. We have no capacity to do otherwise. We have tried to rule our own lives. We've tried to seek power and authority from other means. Governments, wealth, our own family trees. We've tried to find righteousness in some way, but all we keep doing from the inside out that can somehow heal us, that can somehow come from the outside and do what is needed inside of us and give us what we do not have. Paul in Romans 5 says this, For as by one man's disobedience, that being Adam's, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Listen, this is not an infused righteousness. The Roman Catholic Church would have their people believe that righteousness is a thing that is progressing that needs to be maintained and increased. That's why we would have the saints pray for us. That's why we would take a communion that would actually be the body and blood of Jesus. 
because we need more of him in some way, in, in some way re-crucifying him again. It's why we need the saints to pray for us. It's why... don't exactly know where you're going to go after you die. Purgatory is a place for increasing your righteousness as you pay penance for your unrighteousness. This is what's known as the infusion of righteousness. It comes through the sacraments. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches Imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. Righteousness for which we have nothing to give, much less try to maintain or increase. Our righteousness is given. As I preached a few weeks ago, our righteousness is blamed on us. It becomes our record. It becomes counted to us because it is righteousness from someone else that is given to us. We need a new family tree. We need a tree that is righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him, he being the Father, made Jesus Christ to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. It is a holy, mysterious, and undeserved exchange. Christ gets our unrighteousness. We get his righteousness. All of the blame for our sin is blamed on Jesus. And all of the blame for his righteousness is blamed on us. So that the father legitimately says, I declare you righteous. Because all your sin, I sent my son who I to take it upon himself. Now all those who find themselves in him by faith, I love just as much. Welcome to the family tree. Who is this one man? Who is he? Jesus the Christ. He is, the he is of the royally rotten family tree. Yes! But he is set apart as a new righteous branch. Are you still in Jeremiah? I hope so. Jeremiah 23, this is how Jeremiah identifies the Messiah to come. He first pronounces woe against the shepherds, this line of kings, this murderer's, murderer's row of royalty, pronouncing woe to them before speaking of the branch. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away 
You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold. And they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they shall fear no more. Nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. I will gather back all of those sheep who belong to me. Righteous sheep stand. How? Verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous He shall reign as king and deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is have shown up here this morning thinking my performance this last week was pitiful. There's no reason why I should be in church today. Church is for holy people, not for me. Or you may came in, you might have come into church thinking, I'm glad I'm at church today. I'm a holy person. Being in church today will make me more holy. Either way, you're looking at your performance. You may say, Pastor Andy, you don't know my family tree. My family tree from where I come from is rotten to the core. I can tell you tales of abuse, tell you tales of murder and anger, of pride, of addiction. And when I think of it, I see all of those things in me. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. You can't give new righteousness to a rotten branch like me. Or you came saying, Phew, I'm glad I'm not like that tax collector over there. I'm not like that addict over there, that adulterer over there, that prideful hater over there. God, thank you for making me me. And you somehow look at your family tree as an inheritance that you somehow deserve. You look at your pedigree. And you either say, God can't save me, I'm that bad. Or God doesn't really need to save me because I'm just that good. Listen, if there's any part in us 
that think that our performance, either good or bad, can make us righteous before the perfect one, you're sorely mistaken. If there's anything in us that says, my pedigree, whether bad or good, either makes me unsavable or not needing to be savable, we're sorely mistaken. Our performance, our pedigree, matter not an inch. What matters is that the Lord is our righteousness. Can you say that? Is that something that from the heart, at your core of belief, you say, the Lord is my righteousness. I have no righteousness to offer. I can only gain, and I need to gain. My righteousness is based on him. Not just, let me get this straight, not just his performance, and not just his pedigree. Because when we use pronouns like that, his and his, we start to distance ourselves from the reality that Jesus is a living Savior. But if we find our righteousness in the Lord, in a personal Savior who is here this morning by his Holy Spirit, if we find our righteousness in a him, now we have a him who when our performance and our pedigree are either going to the negative self-assessment or to the positive assessment self-assessment, we run to him and say, Lord, you are my righteousness. And we Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What did Jesus promise them? That they would be satisfied. Man, this isn't an infused righteousness. It's an imputed righteousness that just One last thing just to help you think through this a little bit more. Help me think through it a little bit more. Is that what we often experience, <coughs> daily experience, should experience in the terms of in terms of identifying it rightly, is that even in those who have been given the righteousness of Christ, they're unified with him. They're saved unto that day. Indwelling sin remains in and we cannot disavow that reality. That's partly why we live and worship in community. is so that we can have intentional conversations and remind one another graciously, lovingly, but also pointedly. If we see our hearts deceiving ourselves and the deceitfulness of sin hardening our hearts, have indwelling sin. 
that will continue until that day we see Jesus and become like him. But what we also must not forget is that we have indwelling witnesses. That the Holy Spirit of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, did not just come, as wonderful as it is, to say, hey, listen, you're now righteous. He came to say you're part of the family tree and the sap that runs through you is the sap of the Holy Spirit. That the indwelling righteousness of Jesus actually lives inside of the believer. So yes, remember that indwelling sin still lives in us and wants to have us. But the indwelling spirit remember both of those things as we walk in righteousness. Power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. But absolute righteousness purifies absolutely. We wait for that day. Thank you for sending a king, a king of righteousness. Oh, Lord Jesus, a branch. Would you, by the work of your spirit, graft more people onto yourself? Pull them into your fold. Compel them to turn from sin and place their faith in you, Jesus. The one who spread his arms wide at the cross. So that, their blood, so that your blood could make many sinners. We ask this for your glory.